Welcome to the Firing Log, Podcast Edition. I'm Odin, and I run the Anagama-West.com website. I recently interviewed Simon Levin. Simon fires an Anagama he built in Wisconsin and makes his living as a wood-fire potter. His website, by the way, is woodfire.com, where woodfire is one word. We cover a lot of ground in our discussion. First, Simon talks about his pottery and kiln-building experience before moving into a how-to section on reduction firing. After that, he explains how philosophy and metaphor can be essential guides for one's work. And last, we get into two things that Simon feels are very important and he wishes he'd learned about earlier. Anyway, let's get to it. Simon, why don't you explain a little bit about how you got into doing pottery? I um, have a bachelor's degree in psychology. I thought I was going to be pre-law, and I took uh, ceramics the very last semester in college and just kind of fell in love with it. And then we moved to Georgia. I moved to Georgia after um, college and uh, got involved with wood firing with a really wonderful potter named Roger Jameson who lives in, um, near Macon and teaches at Mercer University. Um, made some wood-fired pots there and uh, thought I wanted to go to graduate school. So I took some really, really bad slides and some pretty bad pots and um, uh, got rejected at grad school. So I took a year to study at uh, University of Georgia and uh, got the chance to work with um, Michael Simon and Linda Christensen, which was really uh, at the right time for me in pottery and um, right time and right place and right teachers. And um, they really helped a lot. And in 1993, I went to, uh, I took one workshop uh, with Chuck Hines. We fired an Anagama at Aramont, and I was just totally awed by the Anagama. And I remember falling in love with the flame path in that kiln, how slow and luxurious it was. So... I applied to University of Iowa to go study with Chuck Hines and got my MFA there in, uh, gosh, 98. Was it 95 to 98? And uh, that was a great time. Um, we had a really great core of grad students. We would turn around kilns like firing four, three, four Anagamas a semester. Um, huge learning curve. Chuck Hines' his philosophies um, are definitely the the hard work and, and um, uh, you know, this is experiential ed. Um, you know, you, you get a kiln firing beautifully and you get it worked out and you get really nice pots coming out of it. And Chuck would come along and say, tear it down. This is a school. This isn't production pottery. So, you know, you tear down the kiln, you build another one, and you learn about kiln building. You learn about um, how different kilns respond and different wear responds in different kilns. Um, you know, it, it, it is a great philosophy. Um, Chuck can teach in two or three sentences of made, you know, make a decree that'll that'll push you hard. Um, so after grad school, um, I had been dying. You know, I I had watched a lot of potters and tried to figure out how a person can live and work as a full-time potter. Um, I. Everybody else in my family are professors. Everybody else teaches at a university. Um, I really just want, wanted to and still want to make pots. 
Now you've built quite a few kilns, haven't you? Yeah, it's um, it's become a little bit of a, a side business, um, building kilns for colleges and universities. Which ones? Um, I have. Which schools have you built kilns for? Syracuse University, um, University of Southern Illinois at Edwardsville, uh, and then two community, interesting enough, like two community colleges, uh, Corning Community College in Corning, New York, with where Fred Herbst teaches, um, and uh, Wabonsi Community College in Sugar Grove, Illinois, where Doug Jebson teaches. Let me press a virtual pause button here. Later in our discussion, Simon mentioned working on a kiln project in East Timor, the purpose of which was to localize production of water filtration equipment. That's a really interesting project, and I think his discussion of that kiln belongs with the discussion of his other kilns. So here it is. I had um, these people asking me information about wood kilns and how you build them and, and such and such, and I was giving them kind of free advice, and it turns out they were in East Timor hoping to do a water filtration project, and my free advice turned into a consulting job, which got me over. I flew from Gresham, Wisconsin, not directly, but flew from Gresham, Wisconsin to Dili, East Timor, on the Indonesian archipelago, and spent three weeks there building this kiln for a water filtration. I have a quick question. How was how the kiln related to the water treatment? Um, well, the firing, basically, the filters that they're using are like like a Brita filter. They're colloidal silver and activated charcoal filters that fit into a, a, a basin that you put water in, and it drips out the bottom into another catch basin that has a tap, a spigot on it, and you get, so you can put in water with microbes in it, and it, well, clean water comes out. Mm-hmm. But they want need to mass produce uh, not mass-produced, but larger production of the the um, these containers that stack on top of each other and hold the filters. Okay. And they want to do that in country, and they have a pottery tradition. They do not have a tradition of using kilns, though. Everything's fired outside with buffalo dung. So uh, basically, um, what what would be art technology saves lives. It w- yeah, I mean, it was kind of... That's wild. The, the, the primitive aspect of it, of, you know, I think of what I do generally is pretty much self-pleasing and, and, and following my own kind of bliss and the things I like, and that's, you know, I mean, that's what I've been espousing in this past hour and a half or however long this podcast is. Um, but to take those skills and to see how primitive, primitive meaning first, not necessarily crude, but first, how important they can be to just general survival was was uh, I don't know edifying. Yeah. Well, ser- uh, seriously, I mean, if this is drinking water for a community, you've probably had a positive health effect on the current generation and the young for the next generation. A lot, has, of, a lot of people. To to, yeah, to have this this massive effect and. Um, day in and day out to be working where all your work is um, felt so crucial. Mm-hmm. That was really, really wonderful space to be in. One thing I did want to talk about during this podcast was the notion of reduction cooling. I, some people have 
ask me questions about that, and I know virtually nothing. So I thought I'd ask someone who's done a lot of it, and you apparently have. So why don't you tell us? Um, well, I will tell you, I don't think there's any hard and fast rules about reduction cooling. It's something that seems to be um, developing lately. Uh, I'm sure it was a technology people have done over, you know, over the thousands of years of, of pottery firings um, that other people have developed this, and, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there's uh, books on it in Japanese um, with every aspect labeled and quantified. Um, but I'll tell you what I know. Um, I started down-firing and or reduction cooling in graduate school uh, with when I was firing with Dan Murphy. Um, we'd cool the kilns um, in reduction. So um, at the end of the firing, we'd shut the damper. We'd chink up every available hole. We'd also close down the firebox, too. We'd chink up all primary air, secondary air, the stoke hole. We'd cap the chimney, try and block off any airflow through the kiln. And we'd leave only open one stoke hole, and then we'd just stoke to beat the band in that stoke hole. And it, it creates, you know, all the available oxygen in the kiln goes to burn that wood. And it, there's so much greater fuel-to-air ratio that, that the wood just smolders and fills the kiln with smoke. And it it, uh, it does cool the kiln itself because you're putting in all this unburnt fuel, all that, um, that mass of uh, un... Um, unlocked energy that locked energy in that wood it's stoked in there but there isn't enough air to unlock it and it just helps reduce the kiln and uh, we cool down hundreds of degrees in, in um, that kind of atmosphere um, over time because of the results of that I've and working with my own kiln now I've, I've refined it to something that I'm looking for um, and I keep changing that too. And in refining it, and then having um, a an assistant who pushed me on my uh, definitions, um, I've made a a a, a difference uh, in definitions here. Um, when we were uh, firing this way, at the end of the firing, you know, we've we've done this whole heating process soaking, laying on the layers of ash and flame pads, and then we'd reach a peak temperature, and then we'd close it up and stoke as hard as we can to bring the temperature down. What, what was in the peak reduction. temperature? Do you know what the peak temperature was? Oh, well, we, we try and end on a cone 9, 10, 11, a hot note to make sure all the glazes were fluxed, all the ash was moving at the time. Part of the reason we wanted to make sure we didn't add dry ash onto sticky pots so by closing down the wind of the kiln, by capping the damper as well as shutting the capping the chimney as well as shutting the damper and closing off all um, air ports, you you stop pulling ash onto the pots, and now you're just dealing solely with atmosphere. Um, but we wanted to do this with the hot melted ash that was on the pots already, so we ended on a hot note um, to make sure everything was fluxed, and then we brought it down into temperature. About how far do you think you'd bring it down? Initially, we were probably going about 
two, three hundred degrees down. So from around 2,300 to, or 2,400 to, to 2,100, 22,000. Um, and then we tried to go down further in temperature, but what I was observing happening is sometimes it was a beautiful effect where the, the ashy, glossy surface would pucker just a little bit, and it would become sparkly because now instead of a flat, shiny surface, you've got a multifaceted, shiny surface that um, catches light in all these different ways and glitters. Um, some of the glazes, though, would foam, bubble up, become, uh, you know, gases seem to be getting trapped in the glaze as the glaze is cooling, and it would, you'd really get these foamy things that you could break with a fingernail. They're so fragile. Now, were these applied glazes or the natural ash glaze? Both. Both, okay. Some apply glazes more than others. Clay-like glazes less so. Chinos weren't so bad, but depending on how you did it and how radical the temperature change was and how um, you know clay body, all these things kind of affected these effects. But for the most part, you know, you get a couple really kind of exciting pots and you get loads and loads of you know wear that you would never want to use not just because it was i mean they were interesting looking but they were so fragile and foamy and um you know you got uh foamed glass on the outside of your pot that reduction moves iron to the surface of the pots and some of the pots you know, we were looking to try and get these iron reds um out of the pottery so what um what adjustments did you make to try to achieve that result well, in 2002, I think, I went and taught uh, a firing workshop, a uh, summer workshop at the R.G. Bray with Matt Kelleher. And we were firing an Anagama kiln and a, um, a uh, train kiln. And the idea was to fire both and then compare and contrast uh, the two. So we students came with their work. We loaded up the Anagama at the Bray. And it's built by Dean Adams, um, and we fired the work there. And then while we were firing, we started doing demos, and people were making work. And while the Anagama was cooling, we finished making work and then loaded a train kiln and fired that, and then we unloaded both to compare the work. And we did this Anagama firing with that, that aggressive um, reduction cooling. And talking with Matt, we were talking about iron and the behavior of iron and getting it to migrate to the surface. And he had a Temaku glaze that just foamed all over the place. I mean, there's some really lovely pots that came out of that kiln. Um, but I think almost every one of Matt's as a Temaku glaze just bubbled. Anyway, um, we were talking about the nature of iron and red how do you get that iron red and seeking that iron red? And Matt proposed that um, you need to let it re-oxidize. That for it to be red iron oxide, it needs that oxygen. And if you starve it too much from oxygen, it's going to be black and more muted. Um, so I, um, I've always been a big fan of that oscillation of oxidation to reduction. Uh, you know, it's something that's really unique to firing with solid fuels, 
especially if you don't have a, a, a self-feeding um, Bori box or other configuration. Um, I believe that that oscillation, that variation, um, comes out in the clay. Um, anyway, I started to fire my kiln at home with this method of small stoves during the at the end of the firing we shut everything down and I do a couple pieces of lath in the very last stoke hole and then I'd let it reduce. It doesn't take much to reduce the kiln that's shut down for with you know, start for oxygen. Um, and then I'd let it reoxidize. So as I look in there you throw in a couple pieces of wood and you see this flame without really much wind kinda of come up and block your stoke hole, come out your stoke hole towards your face. Um, but you can see a lot of atmospheric effects, and the whole atmosphere gets cloudy with reduction inside the kiln. And slowly that the flame will die down, and the atmosphere will clear up, and then that fog of atmosphere will dissipate, and you'll see the um, you, you can see across the kiln cleanly. You see clean lines on your posts and shelves, and that's when we stoke again because we know the kiln is reoxidized. And we go like this. I'd start out with, like, let's try this for two hours, and the next time we'd try it for four hours. Rather than go with temperature, we're just using time as our constant variable. And now we're up to 12 hours of doing this, and we've dropped down in temperature from the end of the firing around 2300 to around 1850, 1900. I've gone as long as 17 um, at the end of the 12-hour cycle. But my, my apprentice pushed me to define what I meant, that I'm not doing reduction cooling now. I'm not cooling the whole kiln in reduction. I, because I'm letting it reoxidize, uh, Dominique pushed me to use the term, I'm down firing. I'm firing the kiln down in temperature. It's so, it's so inefficient that I'm still firing, but I'm not gaining anything. I'm specifically trying to lose temperature with that same oscillation back and forth. How has the change in your firing style towards the end of the firing affected the pottery? Um, well, one, I don't have that puckering of the rapid cooling. I don't have any foaming now. Um, the glazes uh, seem to like it a lot better. They have time to let the gases move through them before they solidify. Um, it still, I think it softens that shine. It makes it more satiny. Um, I believe that it's, it's evoking the flame path halos much more than if um, I just ended on a hot note and shut, let the kiln cool in oxid oxidation. I, I know that I'm, my high iron clays that I use in the kiln um, become much richer, darker. I'm getting some of those reds around wad marks. Um, and the porcelains, it's... Uh, I tend to use uh, dirty porcelains, like I put like 1% red art in my porcelain mix because I know that it, under the processes I'm using, I can evoke that iron and that, that very trace amount of red art and bring it to the surface and it warms up the colors and it um, enhances the flashings um, and makes for much more, you know, kind of clarifies the narrative of the process of wood firing. When, when you're firing down, 
and you're putting in more wood, aren't you worried that the pieces might pick up ash and it won't be hot enough to melt? And then they end up with kind of a sandpapery f surface? Well, the the idea is, yeah, I don't want I don't want sandpapery pots. Um, so the idea is to shut down the wind of the kiln, the draft. Really, completely. So, completely. So what I do is, um, at the end of the firing, I actually I'll wait. We'll stoke. I reach that high note. We stop stoking. I let the kiln clear, so that that it kind of settles down and it's completely oxidized. And then I shut the damper, and my damper is, is built so it overlaps. It's you know, a, uh, a brick ledge across the chimney. When I built the chimney, I built a, a sleeve to hold the damper in, basically, so that the flame has to go around corners to get out. It's not simply something blocking the way. It, it, it's as tight as I can make it, and that shuts down, right? And then. I go up, um, get up my ladder, and I go up on top of my roof, and I put a kiln shelf over the top of the chimney. The chimney's so hot that it is still drawing, and I've got to stop that draft. And if I stop that draft, it won't pick up dry ash or ash anymore out of the firebox. It, you know, ash will no longer be an equation. Now we'll be solely be dealing with atmosphere in the kiln for the end of the firing. So then we also block off the primary air, secondary air, chink every crack. What you'll n notice if you try this is when you block every hole except for one stoke hole and you stoke, flame will come out of every crack in the kiln. You know, your what, where you're stoking will become the chimney and, you know, in a pressurized kiln, flame will shoot out of there right at you. So, you know, um, buyer beware, um, stoker beware, you know, uh, it, it, that's your chimney. Your stoke hole becomes your chimney. But you close up that those bricks, and every little crack, flame will shoot out of. If people try to do this down-firing, what, what, what are some of the problems in the pieces that could arise, and what would they do to, to correct those problems if they end up having them? Well, um, some of the problems, if you have too much iron in your clay body... Um, you can get iron coring or dunting, um, you know, cooling cracks uh, from the clay not going through quartz cor you know, correctly. Um, you know, you're altering where the iron is in the clay by doing this process. Um, and you may have to alter your clay body recipe so it can, can take that kind of uh, abuse. Um, I find porcelains are pretty bulletproof in this. They tend to not have a lot of free silica. Uh, you know, I do a very long soak in my firings. Usually that is the biggest problem people have, is the clay bodies have too much free silica that in the long soak it turns to cristobalite, the clays become too glaceous, and then in cooling they crack. Um, so it's not a, a, a problem so much with the down firing as much as just the long firing that three days of soaking at temperature. I'd like to discuss with you the way in which one goes about developing a philosophy towards working with clay and how, basically how you 
came up with your own philosophy and what that is and how it has helped you. I think the first way you, you, you develop a philosophy is much the way you first start making your own forms in clay. You start with somebody else's forms. You start with somebody else's philosophy. You know, you work with somebody, you're like, man, I really respect them. And you ask them the question, you go, why are they doing this? What is it that excites them? Um, and you start, you know, those things might resonate with you if you're working with the right person. If you're working with a person who, you know, what they do don't, doesn't resonate with you at all, you, you know, walk away, leave, find somebody else. Um, you know, you start stealing somebody else's philosophy. And as you go off into the world, you start making, you know, following the, someone else's philosophy of, of why they make pots. And some things will work well for you. And I think there's a natural vetting, you know, process if you're involved in your own work. You know, you can't live under somebody else's philosophy with the, with the parts that, that don't work for you. You know, you, you'll eventually figure out what, what works for you. So, um, in actuality, I, you know, I worked with several potters who um, you know, I respected tremendously and um, who challenged me to kind of look at what I liked about pots. And I truly believe that um, art is communication. Um, and clay is this wonderful material that is very responsive to touch and process um, and uh, is a, a really a potent method of communication. You know, it has its own language to learn. Um, but you have to decide what you want to say, what you want to talk about in clay. And um, I first started off thinking, okay, well, what do I like about pots? And one of the things I like about the pots is, I, you know, I like when they're soft. I like when they're full. You know, what do I, you know, if I were to just pick the adjective words I want my pots to embody, they, they would be words like soft, full, you know, maybe even voluptuous or sensuous, um, you know, working on adjectives. Um, so then how do I make my pots start doing that? Um, and you, you start looking at the elements and um, trying to make those specific elements more like how you em envision those ideas to be. You know, if I'm communicating the idea of soft in a pot, would an angular uh, handle speak about softness? I don't, probably not for me. I, I'd probably want to round those edges. Maybe I want to make it fatter handle instead of a skinny handle. Um, you know, those kind of ideas. I mean, you start chasing those things you like, wondering why you like them, what you like about them. And, and following those ideas will add to your you know, development of your philosophy of what makes a good pot. You know, I think a good pot is one that is eloquent and articulate 
um, ex exploration and expression of an idea. Um, one of the things that I think you and I, Odin, um, are excited about is fire. <laughs> and um, man, what you know, what a great jumping point. Um, you know, what a great springboard for a philosophy. Uh, you can take that idea of, of fire and how do you capture that in a pot? I mean, I visually, I have this memory of watching the Anagama, my first firing of an Anagama at Aramont with Chuck Hines and opening the stoke hole and watching this flame move so slowly through the kiln and it hit this pot and it bounced back. The draft was so dampered down that the, the flame just bounced off the pot and rolled back towards the firebox and the wind caught it again and it came up in a circle and it luxuriously just wrapped around the pot. And, and that, that image is something I've been trying to capture on the work since then. Um, in chasing what I love about that, um, you know, challenge that that idea of flame moving slowly is so sexy. You know, I want to, I want my pots to kind of, some of my pots to explore that that idea. Um, and the idea doesn't necessarily need to, you know, need to be a verbal idea. Um, as I as I work with clay, there are things that occur in the language of clay um, that I find very hard to articulate. Clay seems to be more a language of action than adjective, more verb than adjective. Just you know, clay stretches, clay pulls, clay rips, clay you know, does you know does all these things, and we respond to that. Um, well, so, I, you know, go ahead. You know, in our last conversation when you were, basically you were questioning me, doing some kind of Socratic method about why I like fire. Um, and you know, my, my reasons were it, it's like uh, water or rivers, like streams rolling over rapids and it, it has a very fluid and forceful dynamic about it. And, you know, all of a sudden I started making, I don't know if they're good, I don't know if they'll come out, but I'm on my third pot now, unlike anything I've ever, ever made. I'm sure they're like things other people have made, but they're completely unlike anything I've ever made because there's that one point where you asked me, you know, how, how can you show the fire? And I thought to myself, I can't show, or how do you show the water? And I can't make the water in the riverbed. I can make the boulders in the rocks, though. And that's what I started making. And all of a sudden, it, they became, they're completely unlike anything I've ever made. And it's been really fun. I think that I think you're on your, your first steps to, uh, you know, a philosophy there, Odin. I think oh, I, you, I mean, you, you, you're chasing down something that you're fine to and you're figuring out ways to, to approach it. Um, it's like, you know, it's like poets writing about love. You know, there is no quintessential love poem because it, it's almost 
an impo- you know, probably an impossible thing to do, but we keep trying to capture that thing that's larger with these awkward tools called words. Um, and I think you're on, you're on that that journey. I ha- I took a class in Japanese for one semester when I was in grad school, and um, my Japanese teacher said something I think has been one of the most liberating things I've heard in a long time. She said, in order to learn a word, you have to forget it five times. And I just, you know, that permission to to mess up and, and mess up and make bad stuff and mistakes and um, forget things as an important part, not byproduct or not problem with, but an important part of progression uh, is so so liberating. So, you know, you making rocks and stuff, this start, that start um, uh, doesn't need to be the end, the good, the final developed product. Oh, no, I, I doubt it will be. Um, what's been kind of nice, though, is it's been a, like after the last firing, you know, I, I sort of was procrastinating because I didn't want to get back on the wheel and make a bunch of bowls or anything like that. I just didn't want to, you know, I didn't have any desire whatsoever. And then after we had that conversation and I started making uh, river rocks, it, it all of a sudden became fun again. I, I think I was a little burnt out from just not knowing what to make, so just making the same old things. And, um, yeah. you know, the, and what's, what's so funny is that, you know, I've had this sense of fire is water for a long time, you know, cause when I stand up behind the kiln and I look at the fire coming out of the chimney, it looks like water and I'll stick a stick in it. And it's like putting a stick into a stream. And I've known that for a long time, but it, until we talked and you were like kind of drilling me, I never really thought, you know, I need to be making the rocks that the water flows over. And then once, once you, I mean, once that hit me in our last conversation, it, I started having some fun again. So it was the best, actually, the best critiques I've had were Socratic. What's that? They forced me to the best critiques I've had were Socratic. Yeah, yeah. You know, forced me to kind of do the do the the mental work about uh, you know why am I here? Why right. am I doing this stuff? Uh, you were what you were, about it? Do I like? You were doing the paper chase on me, if you remember that movie. Yes, yes, I think I think we're uh, yeah. telling our age, though. Okay, all right, you are definitely doing the Socratic method, which is you get me to come to some answer, not by telling me what it is, but by asking me questions. Yeah. And it's, uh, it is a rather painful and difficult way to learn, but also it's extremely effective. It, yeah, it definitely can be. Um, and I think some of the best critiques are the ones where, where, the, where the person being critiqued is the one who drives it. At, you know, also ask some of the questions that they're wondering about, rather than just you know. I I think the statistic that applies here is that 80% of what people say says more about themselves than than about what they're commenting on. And uh, so you know, 80% of your crit- critiques, unless you're 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 the one answering the questions, uh, are going to be influenced by the critiquer. Here's another one. I just got to say it. 
63.5% of all statistics are made up on the spot. You uh, every time you say that vary the number. <laughs> it, just make it yeah four percent. I've heard four percent. No, it's twenty nine point six percent of all statistics are made up on the spot. <laughs> Urban legend. Urban legend. No, 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 absolutely not. Why a friend of a friend told you that? Oh no, I read it on Slashdot. It's got to be true. Oh. <laughs> I um. I think the best place to be in the studio that makes me want to go back to the studio um, is being excited about the work, you know, to, to, to have your, your, you know, be in this mindset where you want to go back to the work. So um, when I unload the kiln, you know, every firing, I make some work that kind of asks these questions answer some questions and ask some questions and then the, when we fire pots come out that answer some of those questions that I ask but they ask more and so I'm really trying to become in this, invested in this dialogue with the clay and with the firing so that when I go back to the studio you know it's conversation that, that's moving along and if you know, I'm trying to avoid the small talk too. I, you know, I want a good meaty conversation with the kiln. So you know, you try something new in the firing, and um, I've got this new surface that's coming out of this certain area of this kiln, and I'm like, oh man, what can I do with that? And so I try and make a pot that captures the same feeling as that surface, and I stick that back in the kiln, and I fire it again, and uh, it comes back out, and it's you know, like oh. Well, that wasn't quite right. Uh, I wonder if I try this. And you go back and forth and back and forth. Um, and there's so many different areas in an anagama. You know, you can make pots that get stuck in the stoke holes and get stoked on. You get pots where the ash gets burned up against and recedes. You know, you have your top of your kiln uh, and and uh, front of the kiln and back of the kiln. You have the heavy ash of the firebox. You have the very fine stuff in the way back. You can, fire the back to cone 9 and front to cone 14 um, get cold spots and um, pots that it cast shadow on each other and you, I mean there's so many different variables uh, to not um, li you, know, you listen to those as you unload and then you go back to the studio and, and try and get that conversation flowing and that's that's because so usually towards the end of a throwing cycle, when I'm most connected to clay and thinking of anticipating the firing and what's going to happen, that that's when I really want to be in the studio, right as I'm running out of time. And my skill level of throwing is, you know, at its highest uh, point. That's, you know, when I have to end, and then that's when it's really meaty. Right. Um, I, I find... Uh... I find that too, as it gets closer to the firing and I start to feel pressure, I also start to get more ideas. Then right after a firing, I, uh, I feel really lazy. Yeah. You're spent, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. Um, let's... That's a good time to work on taking slides and putting around and um, writing an article or something. Or just watching videos. 
maybe, uh, maybe even a little more brainless or what much more brainless i'm right after the firing i want to spend a day watching videos oh it takes me uh, yeah it takes me like a week to to recover from the firing yeah um one one thing i wanted to ask you is uh, you know like for me it was it was really interesting it was really helpful your the questioning and the direction that i ended up ended up in but you know most of the time um, I'm just sitting around by myself at the studio or by myself with the cats and they don't talk to me very much so how do you go about working on your approach to I guess I think of it more as metaphor than philosophy I don't know if I'm being I don't know if I'm being pedantic or something but it seems no, it feels more right. like I've been talking more about metaphor um, than philosophy as to what makes a good pot. Right. So, and how do you fire. how do you end up? Um, what what are do you have any tricks or what do you do to sort of like trigger yourself to come up with these different ideas or metaphors for approaching clay? Um. Often I try and throw a monkey wrench into the work into my rut. How do you do that? Uh, uh, well, um, turn your, spin your wheel backwards, um, wedge in a whole bunch of aggregate into the clay. Um, uh, you know, d you know, just something to start, you know, a, a sort of a, a, an icebreaker. You know, just start the conversation. Um, you know, I, I've always had a lot of uh, respect for somebody who can, you know, walk into an adult situation and just say something totally provocative just to get the ball rolling. Um, and sometimes, you know, that's what it takes in the studio. Um, uh, you know, putting a whole bunch of crushed feldspar into your porcelain and throwing, throwing bowls backwards. I mean, it, that's, not up the, on the the to, that's not a way to make a good pot, but it, it, something will happen there if you're attentive to it. Right. You go, oh, well, what if I did this and this and this? Um, I think, okay, now now that you've challenged me about what, what, what we're talking about not just not being philosophy, I'm going to try and pin myself down a little bit on philosophy okay about what what makes a good pot let's go for it because you know chuck hines we were firing we were turning around wood kilns like crazy in grad school and, and um we were you know firing at one there were three wood kilns in the yard two anagamas and a noboragama and they were all firing at the same time and um we turned the noboragama around twice while the anagamas were firing and I'm just going through, uh, you know, just firing. Lots and lots of work, lots and lots of pots, uh, and lots and lots of wood being burned, and uh, some great stuff coming out, you know, and uh, you, know, you get off shift on one kiln, you go to the other kiln, and fire that for a while. And Chuck put a moratorium on wood firing for, like, two months. I mean, like, just, uh, you know, he came in one day, all right, no more wood firing. <laughs> and uh, 
you know, that's why I went to University of Iowa. And, you know, I, I loved woodfire. I knew I wanted to be a woodfire potter. I wanted to become better at woodfire. I wanted to shorten the curve and learn about kiln building and yada, yada. You know, so in my three years there, you know, so there's moratorium on wood firing. It was, you know, just uh, like a kick in the head. And, um, uh, you know, I think it was for a lot of people. And and his Chuck's point is, you know, this is, wood firing isn't an easy answer. You you know, you can't just say this is the surface. How I'm, uh, I don't know how I'm going to finish this pot. I'm going to stick it in a wood kiln. Um, you know, to not have a decision about what process you're going to use when you're making a pot, and then you get this fist square and you just stick it in a wood kiln, is just, uh, I mean, it's crazy. So the idea that you can just um, fire, you know, a pot that wasn't made for the wood kiln and just stick it in the wood kiln and you get this good pot is, you know, is ultimately ridiculous. It's too much work to go through to fire wood kiln that to make it an easy answer. So why are you using a wood kiln? Why was that specific pot made to go into a wood kiln? Why was it wood fired? Um, and I think that's a totally viable and you know, totally reasonable challenge to put down. Um, and I, um, I think it was great that Chuck put that moratorium on on, on wood firing. Um, I'm glad he didn't do it for the whole three years I was there, but um, it was a real important challenge to me and other people. Um, so why you know why wood fire? Um, and what makes a pot good? I think a a pot is, should be a cohesive statement with reiterated ideas throughout the element of the pot that reinforce the statement. So a good pot should explore an idea. Uh, a good pot shouldn't just and and the idea that it is exploring shouldn't be trite or hackneyed. It should be an interesting idea that the person who made it is invested in. You know, though, that when you say it like that, it makes it sound so depressing because, you know, maybe sometimes I just want to make a bowl, a nice bowl. And, um, I mean, it's just a bowl. There's nothing. Is it saying anything? Is it? Yeah. What's it saying? I don't know. I mean, it's well, saying I, something. I, like, I've, I've been, I haven't actually seen this said bowl, but oh. hypothetically. Just <laughs> imagine any nice bowl that you would like to eat cereal out of, or soup, or whatever. Okay. I find it exciting when I'm eating out of a bowl that the maker is invested. The house I live in you know, is a square-cut log home that's 130 years old, you know, and it's dovetailed joints, and each log had to be, you know, the person had to respond to the log, each log differently to get it to fit in the dovetailed joints. There's this revelation of process. I can see the work that went into it, and I love it. You know, the way the walls are chinked in these wandering lines, there's an investment in there. You know, it's not just dropped out of a machine. It's not mm -hmm. cookie cutter. 
It's a person with skill responding to something um, challenging. Um, I, I, and what does it say? You know, it says something about a person being there, present. You know? I guess I had, um, when, when you mentioned that at first, I had in my mind more like it has to communicate more of a, a more of a, a sort of a message as opposed to sort of um, communicate the state of its creation or being. Well, I think that that is a message. You know, the, the, what you're communicating, what whatever idea you're exploring in your pot doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, um, pro-war, anti-war state of, um, you know, a comment on on Western civilization and ennui. Um, you know, it doesn't need to, to, to be so literal. Okay, I think I'm be, taking it... You can I, make a pot I am taking about it too how literally. clay rips. Sorry, say that again? I mean, you, could, you can make a really wonderful pot just about how clay rips. That quality of clay. As we neared the end of our discussion, I asked Simon if there was a question I ought to ask him, but I hadn't asked him. And he was quick to suggest that I ask him about things he wished he'd learned a lot sooner than he did. It was a very good question, and I thank Simon for that. You were talking a little while ago about clay treatment, and it's not specifically being nice to clay. You know, it's how you uh, work with the clay. But I, I remember back in college when I first had my very first pottery class, how I, I was approaching the clay all wrong and I was using a lot of force and a lot of muscles and I was just getting really, really sore. And um, eventually it kind of, it just kind of worked out that I realized it wasn't really so much how much force or power I exerted over the clay. It was more how I would, how I would approach it. Kind of like, just kind of like with people. If you go up and you try to force them to do something, they often will resist. And clay was the same way. If I tried to force it, it would resist. But if I would ask nicely, sometimes it would do what I'd ask, you know. Not always, but from time to time it would. Um, and so I, you know, I don't know. When people talk about, somehow it always bothers me when people talk about going into the studio and taking your frustrations out on the clay. Because um, I don't like that idea. I think that's you know, kind like of clay, um, clay is punching uh, bag. Yeah, it's kind of like you know, domestic violence in the studio or something like that. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think forcing and bearing down on the clay, you know, is. Um, I think that comes out in, in the clay. The clay looks forced, and the you know it. it, it extends to the same idea about what you want to communicate. If what you're trying to communicate, you know, you're forcing that issue, it's going to look contrived. You know, um, it's going to look forced. It's not going to look natural. It's not going to look, um, uh, I don't know. It, it, it um, I, I don't, I, I wouldn't like pots that are forced. I wouldn't like, I don't think I, I, I've 
seen very few good pots that look like they're forced into shape. You know, the first pots I started to make uh, looked like they were hewn. You know, I was so intent in form, it didn't matter what the interior was. You know, I was trying mm-hmm. to just get that exterior surface and line to be just right. You know, thinking only about form as an element. That's why I'm trying to talk about clay treatment because, um, you know, when you're, you're treating your pots like they were made on a lathe, why is it important that you're working with a plastic material like clay that can be pushed and pulled? I have that problem. I definitely have that problem. <laughs> I think it's a very common problem. I think it's partly because we live in such a two-dimensional world that, and we think about form as the major component. Um, as a, you know, and and maybe you think about form and surface, those two elements. But you know, we're in, living in this industrial age, right? Um, I mean, some people say it's post-industrial age, but I, I think industry is still on its rise, on the rise. Um, and a machine can make a mug faster than you, more symmetrical than you. You know, okay, so why why make a symmetrical mug? You know, what is it about the handmade object that you can do that machines can't? What makes it interesting? Um, and how you treat the clay is one of the things that's interesting about um, handmade pottery. And it's a good way to communicate. Yeah, I, I, I struggle with that a lot because I have a tendency to, I have a tendency to overwork. Um, and, and I know this. And... Uh, it just uh, it it shows, you know, and a lot of the times the stuff that I like the best is the stuff that I touch the least, and mm-hmm. somehow I think that if I could make a bowl without touching the clay at all, it would be perfect. <laughs> um, I, I like. I bet you could bring that clay out under a dripping faucet, <laughs> let the water rough out the the concave concave area um, the other thing I wish someone had helped me with um, was the whole business side of clay the how to market yourself how to promote yourself how to talk about your work how to um, approach a gallery what makes a good gallery good um, what uh you know, what what's a, a good kind of basis, you know, for um, deciding how to promote yourself, how to determine whether, you know, this art fair is a good market for you or not, um, what to charge for pots, you know, all this kind of business side of stuff that certainly um, has been shunned in academia, um, but... Uh, is so important if you're going to become a full-time potter. So this this business area that you feel is pretty untouched in academia. Do you have any do you have any particular suggestions for people or any particular ways that people might learn about how to um, get an understanding of the business sense of pottery? Well, I think there there is a growing movement in the in U.S. potteries, uh, 
that is apprenticeships. Um, Mark Shapiro has has apprentices. Mark Hewitt has apprentices. Um, let's see, Allegheny Meadows, um, Sylvie Granatelli, to name a few people. Um, I've had two apprentices so far. Um, I think, especially in woodfire pottery, where it, you know, it takes a community of efforts, um, apprenticeship can serve this symbiotic role of helping the professional potter um, make his living um, ease the the workload, um, but it can it can also be this great um, springboard of information and opportunities for a a young potter to see what the day in day out life of a potter is without the romance uh, associated with um, uh, eyeing eyeing it from afar With, without um, the image you see in Hollywood movies but, I mean, it's <laughs> always like ghost here it's just I mean, it's always, just I, I don't know the um, uh, yeah it, it's I mean it's a very real day in day out kind of job in some ways um, was fantastic there's some fantastic elements about it um, are you know I love what I do I'm excited about what I do um, I, I get to play with fire and clay and I get to make things and um, I get to express myself which is so gosh it seems so rare to um, among people in the workaday world uh, so yeah that's absolutely fantastic and I, I, I'm thrilled with that um, but uh, how do you how do you get to that place and how do you like I constantly feel like I'm pushing to make get my work out there and get sales um, and I've been able to work with apprentices here teach them how to take slides and work on them developing their voice in clay um, give them the opportunities to fire to come to workshops to build kilns um, and they've been a tremendous help with me getting into the studio more and making my own work. And, you know, everybody's got a different take on what an apprentice is and what an apprentice jobs are. Um, Richard Bresnahan has set up a, an apprenticeship system at St. John's University um, for people to come and work with him and learn his method of making pots. Um, and that's very different from what Mark Hugh is doing, what I'm doing. Um, I think Brezhnev has moved the Japanese model of apprenticeship to the United States. And um, I think uh, his apprenticeship is much longer, and it, it's supposed to take the place of um, graduate school. Um, I see my apprenticeship here as um, not necessarily taking the place of, of graduate school, but uh, might be an in-between or post-graduate place to be. And so concludes another installment of the Firing Log podcast. 
I want to thank Simon for doing this interview, and I want to particularly thank him for giving me ideas which have renewed my energy and excitement toward making pottery. So, till next time, happy firings!